This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to another episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. On this Mitch Marathon month, or uh, quite frankly, Mitch Marathon madness. I mean, this is this is nutty. There are way too many interviews to get done, but we're getting them done. Anyway, uh, today I'm going to dig back into the vault. So we are going to have one of these interviews that got lost along the way. And this is with producer, mixer, Bob Clearmountain. He's, of course, worked on albums by Hollow Notes. Uh, Big Bang Boom, Brian Adams, You Want It, You Got It, Cuts Like a Knife, Reckless, Into the Fire. Uh, he's mixed albums by the Rolling Stones, including Tattoo You, uh, Stripped, uh, Live Licks, um, what else? He's done Roxy Music, Huey Lewis and the New Sports, David Bowie, uh, Let's Dance, and then a whole bunch of Bruce Springsteen albums, including Born in the USA, Tunnel of Love, Lucky Town, etc., 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 and... This interview was done probably, trying to think, either in uh, February or March of 2019. And when there is a guest uh, such as Bob that is not promoting something that has to be right now, right now, right now, like a producer, you know, um, I will put that in the in a different pile, sort of like, okay, well, you know, I'll I'll get to it when I get to it, and uh, you know, I, I'll I'll move up the ones that have uh, sort of uh, time stamps on them in the sense that we're talking about an album that comes out on Friday or we're talking about a tour that starts on Monday or anyway it got lost in the shuffle it was um it was a half hour interview now of course uh, listening to it you're probably going to hear some time references back to February or March of 2019 but anyway I I've got it up and uh, I hope you enjoy this because uh, I, I like I said I'm going to go through the entire a closet of uh, interviews that have been uh, lying around, and we're going to get them all out, and you're going to get a chance to hear them. Now, uh, this, of course, was done with the uh, last mic setup that I had, so I, I don't know how that's going to affect the uh, the sound, but anyway. Again, folks, please head over to uh, loudtracks.com forward slash Mitch to see if you want a, a t-shirt, and and let me know at, at Mitch uh, LaFon on uh, Twitter whether I should make a white shirt uh, with the logo or not. I think a white shirt would be actually kind of cool, quite frankly. And, um, well, there you go. So here, here, without further ado, as I clean out the closet, um, you know, uh, we could have these long discussions between at the front of every one of them. But I think on some of these, let's just do efficient, quick and easy. So uh, here, without further ado, because there's been a lot of further ado that we, we've been waiting a long time. Here is producer, mixer, all-around good guy, Bob Clearmountain. We are speaking with engineer, mixer, and producer Bob Clearmountain. He, of course, has had a hand in many, many of the world's greatest albums, including a lot of the Bon Jovi stuff, Brian Adams, and more, the Rolling Stones. Bob, an absolute pleasure to have you on today. Uh, thanks. My pleasure. Yes. Um... You know, I'm, I'm going to start here, before we start getting into the history and how did you become an engineer and a producer, on uh, January 26th, I was in Montreal with Brian Adams, and uh, the, the local radio station was interviewing him, and they said, boy, talk about waking up the neighbors. You were on there with, with Mutt Lang and, and Bob Claremont, and he looked at the guy and he said, he said, ah, yes, the A-team. Um <laughs> 
Right. Uh, talk to me a little bit about your work with Brian and, and Mutt, because I was actually talking to Phil Collin this morning of Def Leppard, who, who who bemoaned the fact that he's never worked with you, but he also was extolling the virtues of of Mutt. So talk to me about this team of Claremont and Lang, and, and how does a producer and a mixer and all, how do you have to work together to sort of become the A-team? Because uh, he, I mean, Mud is, you know, he's quite different than most producers. You know, he's a bit uh, painstaking, a bit more painstaking and and um, hands-on than than most guys, I think. <laughs> and uh, see, yeah, that's a that's a tough question to answer because yeah, I mean, he's a difficult guy to actually work with. I mean, Brian and he are very good friends, and and they've obviously done some incredible work together but um um he you know my tends to dictate every single little minute thing that happens on a record including you know performing his own you know doing background vocals himself because he's an incredible singer besides being an amazing producer and um so and i'm not quite used to that i mean i'm, I'm used to having a bit more freedom as far as um making mixed decisions and things like that. So it was a little awkward for me, to be honest. Um, but it did work. It worked out fine. You know, I always try to adjust to, to my style, to whoever I'm working with. And, uh, which was certainly the case with, with Mutt. And it was different than, than my role with Brian on the four albums before that, where I was the co- a co-producer. And so kind of had more of a, um, equal input into it. Yeah, so let me talk to you about about producing first, because you've done sort of everybody from uh, Brian Adams to you've done stuff with the Stones, you've done stuff with um, Johnny Holiday, uh, Demi Lovato, and, and and others. Talk to me about how you adjust your style for each. Or in fact, do you adjust your style for each project, or is it no? This is Bob the producer, and this is what I do. And if you want to buy in, we're good. And if you, you know, do you do you sit down with each artist individually and, and talk to them and see a vision, or do you have your way and they just sort of have to buy into it? Well, you know, obviously, I have a certain. Everybody's got a certain style to what they do. You know, any mixer or producer. But the thing is that I, I never think of it as my record. I mean, I didn't write the songs. I didn't do the performances. It's and so I try to um, get into the artists and producers' heads and. You know, I do try to usually, if I can have a conversation with them, it's the best thing to find out what their motivations are and their direction is, and and um, how they feel that the outcome should be. You know, what it should end up. The the sound of the record should reflect their vision, not my vision. And so I try to be uh, as chameleon-like as possible, and and so that I'm reflecting a reflection of what they want and try to get the best out of what they, they want to do, you know? And so any suggestions that they make, even if I disagree, which often I do, I'll say, okay, well, let me see what, why do they want that? And I try to understand it. And once I understand it, then, then, okay, I get that. Let's I'll make that work and that kind of thing. I do want to ask you about, I, I know we only have about 20 minutes. So I'm trying to go through this as quickly as possible. Uh, shine a light, the uh, Rolling Stone film. Yeah. Talk to me about the specific challenges of 
producing and mixing music for a film because it, it, it can't necessarily just reflect on the music. The music has a purpose, an intended purpose in the visual and in the, 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 the movie telling and in the film telling. Um, talk to me about that project. And was it just I went in and mixed something or did you really have to sort of sit with Scorsese and say, OK, how are we going to make this fit the scene? Well, that's exactly what the, the second part of what you just said is exactly what it was. I mean, first of all, I was there from the beginning, so I recorded it. And, um, you know, I was in the theater, and so I experienced what what the whole thing was, plus the fact, of course, I've been working with the Stones for forever. Um, but the, but Scorsese was a whole different element because he had a, a filmmaker's um, viewpoint on the whole thing instead of a, a you know, music producer or a, an artist. And so he would, he would edit the, the film and then he'd say to me, okay, the, the, what's happening audio wise has to reflect what we're looking at, you know, and it, very t- often it would be a, a specific cut. I mean, and then the camera, obviously that there were, I think 18 or 19 film cameras on the, on the stage and so that would change quite quite radically and so the mix if you listen to the mix without looking at the picture it sounds kind of ridiculous because things just jump out because they'll have a, there'll be a full shot of keith they'll say okay i want to hear keith now it's as if the the microphones were on the camera that kind of an effect and um in fact i got slagged for that in gear slots i think on one of these these uh bulletin boards I said boy it's just what was Clear Mountain thinking, you know, doing such a, um, you know, dynamic mix. And, uh, but people that actually watched the movie that were more into the stones and just watching the movie, I think they got it, that it, it was like you were, you were the camera and things, the mix would change according to what you saw. And, uh, it was a whole different way of doing it. I've done so many concert videos. It's probably about half of what I do. And, you know, a lot of times you'll, you'll ride the, guitar solo up of course you know or or something is a featured musical element but nowhere near as drastically as what scorsese was was calling for yeah really um let me quickly talk about the the technology you went from the good old days of splicing two-inch tape with a razor blade and (laughs) and cutting and pasting literally to being able to fly stuff in with pro tools are we sort of in a in a golden era of music making with the ability to mix and match, or have we gotten to a point where everything is so perfect and so pitch corrected and so auto tuned that we sort of lost the essence of the song and the essence of the music? Well, it depends on who's at the controls, really. I think the, the tools that we have now are fantastic. You know, I mean, I wouldn't want to have to go back to cutting to its tape with a razor blade. For anything, because that was it was really the hard work, and and you had to be so careful, and it was very hard to like if you cut something and it didn't work to actually put it back. It, it, nowadays, with digitally, it's just it's it's vastly it's it's a huge improvement. But at the same time, it's very easy to get too precise, which is kind of what you were getting at, I think. And I think so many records nowadays, they really are too, uh, they sound too perfect. You know, they don't sound human anymore. They, uh, it's so easy to, 
to get every little flaw out of a performance. And, you know, you, you okay, you're, the singer sings one of the choruses pretty good and the other one's not so good. So, oh, let's just repeat that. And, you know, that that's so simple to do nowadays that it happens, I think it happens too much. And people, sometimes you should just let a performance be a performance. And to me, so many records, a lot of modern records are just boring to me because you can hear that. You can hear where things are repeated and things are so auto-tuned and processed that there's there's no... The human quality is all filtered out. And I, I liked... My, I prefer listening to older records, even though I'm a, big, I'm a big digital fan more so than analog. I don't actually like recording on analog. I, uh, it always kind of bugged me. All, most of my favorite records were all recorded analog and recorded the old way because it sounded like humans. And it, it, that's what's important to, in, in music to me is that human element. Is that, is that a conversation you'll have with a Brian Adams or, or a Bon Jovi or, or, an, or you know, a client, for the lack of a better word, and say, listen, I'll do this album, but we can't make it perfect. We need to, you know, there, there's a certain beauty in the imperfections, right? Uh, well, no, I won't have that conversation because this is just my own opinion. Okay. And uh, I'll do whatever the, the client wants. You know, if they if they want totally programmed drums and they want everything to be flawless, so um, hey, they're paying me, right? They're paying me f- uh, um, for a service that I'm providing. And um, if they want to have a conversation about it, fine, I'll tell them how I feel, but it isn't going to keep me from doing whatever it is they, they want to do. You know what I mean? Because it's, right. it just wouldn't be right. And I would probably not be working so much anymore. <laughs> If I was like, if I put my foot down, I'd say, well, I'm not mixing that because it sounds too perfect. You know, I don't think that would work. <laughs> that would work. Uh, let me look at some of the some of the classic albums that you you've had uh, a hand in. Of course, uh, being a Canadian living in Montreal, Brian Adams' Reckless, 1985, absolute mm-hmm. absolute masterpiece. Um, Talk to me about yeah, really. Uh, and I, and I had a nice conversation with Jim Valance about a, about a month ago about it. Um, Talk to me about that album because you know here here he is coming off of cuts like a knife where the success was starting to rise. We had you wanted you got it where you know uh, was this sort of the make and break album for for Brian and 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 what was it like going into into the studio? Was there a sense of pressure or was this a sense of hey it's just another album and whatever is whatever? Well, it was somewhere in the middle between okay. those two things because there was a bit of pressure, you know, because we wanted it. We had some. Um, success with uh, the album before, and um, but the thing is with that he'd written some <laughs> really great songs, and so I didn't think there was going to be there was much question that it would be successful, that it, it would do well. Um, I really believed in him a lot. I still do, and uh, uh, but it was. Uh, it was a lot of work. I mean, we were very careful. I mean, there was a few songs we recorded several times to get it right. You know, we would change, arrange, like Summer of 69, we recorded, we pretty much finished it and listened to it and go, you know, there's something that's not really working here. And we re-recorded the thing. We started over. We did it all over and changed the arrangement. We actually went back with Jim Valance and and worked on the arrangement in, in demo form and came back and uh, redid it and 
I think we got it right the second time. And so there was, there was a bit of pressure. We wanted to make sure it was right. We weren't going to let anything get by. And we did, you know, we ended up uh, redoing quite a quite a few, not full tracks, but, uh, no, actually, there was One Night Love Affair we redid, I think, as well. You know, so a few things, but a lot of overdubs we went back. No, that's not good enough. Let's go back and, and get that better. Right. So, yeah, there was some pressure. And of course, you have Jim playing drums on, on the demos and stuff. Um, the demos, yeah, yeah. He's a good drummer. Well, yeah, he was in Prism, so you, 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 you know. But he, uh, he chose a, a life of writing instead, probably wisely so. Uh, touring yeah. musician is hard. Uh, so when it, when a band comes to you, or, or when Brian comes to you in a production uh, f- state, what is sort of your uh, method in, for producing a band is it we do drums first we do guitar first four on the floor everybody what's sort of your method for getting the best performance and that's the best album or does it change from band to band yeah, it does change but i prefer to have the whole band in the studio together and the singer in the vocal booth and uh and uh, everybody playing together and hearing what the other the other band members are doing so they they tend to uh react you know i'm a big fan of live music i think that's why i end up doing so many live albums and live concert videos and um so i gravitate towards that and you know sitting there watching a guy with with a a mouse and a computer for days and days programming things this kind of it's just kind of boring to me (laughs) and uh you know if that's the I, I probably wouldn't. I mean, I don't think I've ever been involved in a production like that. It's always anything that I ever produced. It was live musicians playing and uh, together. You know, they can hear each other, and um, so that is my pr- preference. Uh, I'm not saying that records have to be made like that because obviously there's you know thousands of of hit records that are are made piece by piece and either programmed or overdub by overdub it's just a matter of preference i just like like people reacting to each other you know it's just just my own my own thing your your own thing so okay let me let me just ask you once again then about about the the new technology because i've been involved in albums myself and and you know we did an album not too long ago 2013 40 tracks nobody saw each other in a studio everything was done via email is that something that you're encountering too, where it's just people sending files back and forth and, and you don't see each other? Or is there an insistence when working with Bob that, okay, no, we can do that for some demos, but we still need to get you in a room and look at each other in the eyes? Well, uh, I don't produce that many records anymore. I mean, that could be partly why, because it was going in the other direction and it wasn't interesting me anymore to do that uh, so i'm mainly involved in the mix so most of the time it's all it's all already done and i don't i don't even know how it was done and it doesn't matter to me just as long as it, it the arrangement's good and the performance is good and the song is good um and even then even if it's bad if they're paying me to mix it i'll do 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 the best i can to make it great you know um i mean like a lot of the things like I do a lot of stuff for Springsteen and he's in New Jersey and I'm in Los Angeles and we do it online and he'll, he'll send me a track. I'll mix it and then they'll listen to it and I go, Oh, you know what? 
this could really use a, a different guitar part or something like that, or a different, um, um, a different, well, it needs a tambourine or something. And so then they'll just um, FTP some additional tracks. In fact, we're doing that right now today. <laughs> Pardon me, we're working on a song like that. Oh, nice. And, um, you know, we'll put it in. And, and uh, so, it's, yes, sometimes it's done piece by piece. And it's interesting that once people hear the, the mix, they'll decide that, oh, well, it's not quite there yet. It needs something else. Or it needs uh, the, that piano part isn't quite making it. Let's redo that. Th- things like that. So, yeah, that happens all the time. And that's just part of making records. And it's certainly accepted. Uh, you know, it doesn't matter to me but as long as it's good. <laughs> These days in the news, there's a lot of talk about a Van Halen reunion and something might be happening. You did, of course, get a chance to work on their Tokyo Dome live in concert. Um, talk to me about about that album. And I mean, was that sort of one show and, you know, good luck? Or was it three, four, five, six, seven shows and you sort of got to pick and choose the best performances to make a mix? Um what was sort of the challenges of putting together a Van Halen live record in 2015? Well, that was just one show. And uh, like the Stones, they didn't come in and replay anything or fix anything. It's just just what they do on stage live. And to the point where we actually kept it. This is unusual for me. We kept the sounds exactly the same because they're basically a three-piece Um with a vocalist, they, um, nothing changed through the whole the whole album. In fact, I mixed the whole album like twice, I think. And uh, and once once we got the sounds on everything, they wanted to. They said, "Okay, that's the sound. We love that. Let's just keep that for the whole entire record." And so, it's it was a simple record to mix. I mean, really, once the the hardest part was getting the initial sounds to. Get it so they're happy with, and, and they're a little unusual the way, uh, um, especially the way the drums sounded was a little bit unusual for me. But um, it ended up, I, I think, sounded really good. I was quite happy with it. I, so uh, yeah, it was very, it was pretty straight, straightforward, really. Yeah, I mean, I know fans took took some shots of that, but I, I love the album. I love the fact that a live album is a live album and not, you know. Live in Tokyo, but recorded in Los Angeles, because you know Los Angeles studio. Um, just real quick, uh, in terms what, of can I can I just ask you what what shots did people take at it? Just out of curiosity. Oh, you, you know, if you follow if you followed it online, they, they they were well. Dave's vocals are all over the place, and his, his singing was sloppy, and it's just like, but 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 uh, yeah, folks, but that's that's David Lee Roth. That that's what he's been since 1977. It's always been somewhat. Of a of a scat vocal, it's always been somewhat of an improvised vocal. So, yeah, you know, kind of, yeah. quel est le that's problème? <laughs> right, but that's what he does, and that's that's, that's sort of what he does live. Yeah, and and, and it, yeah, yeah. Well, it, it was to be a, a, a you know a fairly precise representation of their live show, which I think is what it was. Yeah. Which which is what it was. Yeah, um, and I know since we're going to run out of time, just real quick. Uh, what sort of makes a good mixer? Because when you look at your pedigree of all the bands you've worked with, and, and you know, we can repeat them at nauseum, uh, the Huey Lewis's, the In Excesses, the David Bowie's, the, the, the Stones, uh, Paul McCartney, 
these are not your D-list artists. These are the best of the best. Why do they come to you? What is it about you that makes it the guy? Why are you the go-to guy for these bands? Oh, it's blackmail, actually. I have something on all of them. <laughs> no, but, but, but what makes a good mixer? For, for the layman who's know. listening, what, what makes a good mixer? Why, you know, why, why can't I just mix an album? Like, what's sort of the, that, that, that skill that, that puts you above the rest? I, I wish I knew. You know, I don't really know. But the, my guess is that kind of what I was saying earlier about really paying attention to what, who the artist is and, and you know, what the, the producer and the artist, what they want. And, you know, the, not to ever think that, oh, this is my, my record and, and not, you know, I don't, I try not to put my stamp on anything, you know, like it should really reflect who the artist is. And, and, uh, I think they, they like that. I, I, I think, I work with people like I did a Toto album last year and, and I, and they kind of, it sounds like Toto, you know, that it sounds like what they've pretty much always sounded like. And it didn't, I didn't try to, um, all of a sudden break new ground for them, I guess, you know, um, I, I, I guess that's what it is. I mean, uh, other than that, you'd have to ask them. <laughs> I don't really know. And it's, it's really interpreting the music the way they want to be interpreted, I think. Yeah, and, and, and by the way, Steve Lukather, uh, I had a nice chat with him the other day. One of the greatest oh, yeah. guys. Just absolutely. Well, let me ask you quickly then about Toto. Why do you think uh, there's this perception that Toto is sort of just a studio band? And, and yet here they've been around for whatever, 40 years. Steve has played on upwards of 500 albums, some known, some as a ghost. Um and then you get an, an organization that, like the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame that just sort of thumbs their nose at them. Um, talk to me a little bit about Toto and 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 why you, they're just they're just precise in the studio. They're great. Well, th- that's probably why because a lot of people think of them as studio musicians and they don't really think of them as a as a proper rock band. That maybe I, I don't know. I'm guessing, right? So don't don't quote me. This isn't <laughs> why, but I, I, I'm I'm just guessing that people think that um, that the, you know Toto is like a sideline for them. That normally they're just studio guys, you know, and they get together once in a while and make a make an album. And so I think since the critics maybe don't take them seriously in that they're they're devoted to being a rock band, like like Van Halen. They don't play on anybody else's records, you know. They don't, they don't do any outside stuff. A lot of, a, a lot of rock bands don't. They're just their own thing. And Toto is totally different than that. And, and I can only guess that that's that's, that, that's the reason. That. And then since we're running out of time, I'll just finish with this. Uh, you had a chance, of course, to work on uh, Bon Jovi's These Days, Crush, Bounce, and stuff. Um, what was it like working with that band and also getting a chance to mix Richie Sambora? I really do think he's one of these underrated guitar heroes. You know, people love Richie. They love his voice. They love, you know, Wanted Dead or Alive. But when you think guitar heroes, right away you go, Jimi Hendrix, Eddie Van Halen. And yet I think Richie belongs in that conversation. Uh, yeah, let's see. Um, yeah, it makes a couple of Richie's, uh, Richie's records. And yeah, he's he's really good. You know, I think... Um, 
I don't think he's quite as good of a songwriter maybe without John. I mean, maybe I shouldn't say that, but I mean, his songs are good. They're just not, um, of course, John always has a lot of, a lot of help with his songs most of the time with other songwriters, uh, like Desmond Child and people like that help him out. And, uh, I think on Richie's records, he, he was more on his, on his own. And so, um, I guess, I don't know. It's hard to say. I mean, I think he's fantastic. He's an amazing guitar player. That's for sure. There's no doubt about it. And he's a great guy to work with too. You know, uh, it's always fun working with him. Um, with John, it's interesting because we, we go way back. He was originally um, a runner at Power Station in New York where I used to work. And so he was just this kid would, that would like with, get us coffee and stuff. With Tony. Yeah, right. Exactly. Because he's Tony's cousin. Yeah. And um, and then, you know, I, was, I remember he finished recording his record. He used to record at night. And he, he used to... I, come in and he'd say, Bob, oh, could you mix a couple songs of my record? Because, you know, we're pretty much finished. And I was just so busy in the 80s that I just said, oh, John, geez, I'd love to help you out, but I just can't. And then six months later, I'm driving in my car and, and I hear Runaway come on the radio. I go, wow, that's a cool song. That's a, that's a great song. Actually, I wonder who that is. And then the, the DJ comes like, that's the new song by the new band Bon Jovi. And I went, oh, my God, really? It's like, why didn't I make that kid's record? So I thought that's pretty funny. Yeah, and you got a chance to work with him later, but but it, it yeah, was yeah, an interesting. Became we, you know we stayed friends. Yeah, and it was an interesting time back then because you you had Aldenova, you had uh, Billy Joel's drummer now Chuck uh, Berge in there. They that first album, man, it's 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 a classic. Even though it was sort of pieced together with all these different guys and different people, great stuff, you know. Right. Um, yeah. I could ask you more, but I, I know you, you wanted to stop at about 20, 25. We're, we're almost at 30. So, Bob, absolute, uh, absolute pleasure. All right. Uh, pleasure's mine, really. And thanks, thanks for uh, being interested in stuff that I have to say. Yeah. Well, yeah. And thank you for all, for all the music over the years because, uh, and I'll just go back to where we started with Brian Adams here back this January when he said uh, Mutt and Bob are the A team. There, there really is an A team. When you see an album that says Bob Claremont and Clear Mountain on it, you know that it's top quality because the artist that's using you is top quality, and because what you do uh, is top quality. Nobody ever says, "Where's the bass on the Bob?" You know, nobody says, "Where? Why can't we hear the vocals?" You know, you don't get that. Uh, it's always crisp, clean, clear, and uh, appropriate, perfect. Well, thank you very much for the compliment. I appreciate that a lot. And uh, yeah. Do the best I can, you know. <laughs> it's wor it's working out. Uh, anyway, so many more albums to go, uh, sports and all that. But uh, I, we will leave it there, and we'll, maybe we'll do a part two. And, and as we say in Montreal, uh, merci, merci beaucoup. All right, great, thank you. Take care. Thank you. Cheers. Bye bye. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Rock Talk. 